Hi everyone and welcome to Dragon Bites, the podcast aimed at paediatric trainees or anyone interested in child health. I'm Asim Javed, a paediatric trainee currently working in Wales. This week we're back to revision again and we're going to be doing a deep dive into nephrotic syndrome. So if you've got exams coming up or if you've ever struggled with getting your head around nephrotic syndrome, I know I certainly have, join Stacey Harris, one of the co-finders of Dragon Bites, and Raj Krishnan for a quick rundown on everything you need to know about nephrotic syndrome. Okay, let's get started. Hello, I'm delighted to be joined by Raj Krishnan uh, today. He's a consultant paediatrician um, and paediatric nephrologist at the Children's Kidney Centre at the University of Hospital uh, Wales. We're here today for our first uh, learner-led podcast we've been asked to talk about nephrotic syndrome. And I know that when I was revising for my exams, I found uh, nephrotic syndrome and nephrology in general really confusing. So I'm really hoping that um, Raj might be able to help me clear up some of uh, my confusion today. So uh, Raj, uh, I wanted to uh, start with what is nephrotic syndrome? So thank you, Stacey. And I think it's a fantastic opportunity for me to do that. So when you talk about uh, nephrotic syndrome, nephrotic syndrome is mainly three things you need. You need to have proteinuria, you need to have low albumin in the blood, and you need to have edema. So those three things are the paramount things. So you might actually find someone with a low albumin. So it could be a liver patient or, or a shortcut, but that will not be nephrotic syndrome. They could be puffy with that, but if they don't have proteinuria, they do not have nephrotic syndrome. So it's quite important that you have these three elements before you uh, before you label someone with nephrotic syndrome. So it's proteinuria, low albumin, and edema before you say, oh yes, you do have nephrotic syndrome. So my always, my first thing to when I meet up with trainees is to say that if you find anyone with swelling, it doesn't hurt to get a sample of urine, dip it. Because if you dip it, and if you find there is actually proteinuria, you're more or less got your diagnosis there. Wow, that, that's really clear. Um, so the thing that I used to find confusing is the difference between nephrotic syndrome and nephritic syndrome. Yeah. Um, would you be able yeah, to Yeah, I should say, so that? when you actually, when I talk about nephrotic syndrome, especially to families, nephrotic syndrome is actually, when I, so how do I put, explain nephrotic syndrome to families? It's like saying, if you're going to get spuds out of the ground, and going to clean it in your kitchen sink. What actually happens with the normal kidneys is that spots will get cleared and nothing goes down. But when you have nephrotic syndrome, of course the spots will get cleared and the spots itself will actually go down the kidneys. It's actually the spots itself going down the your drain pipe. So that's what nephrotic syndrome is. So it's actually what you have a leaky system. You have a sieve that's actually quite leaky. What causes nephritic syndrome is actually an inflammation of the kidneys. So you have inflammation. So you'll find a lot of blood than the protein in the kidney. When there is inflammation, there is also blood pressure problems. So you'll have hypertension along with it. So when you have a lot of macroscopic hematuria, you have proteinuria too, but you also have hypertension, you basically say, this person has got nephritic syndrome. So nephritic syndrome is actually inflammation of the kidneys, nephrotic syndrome, is leaky kidneys. That really clarified that for me as well. What a lovely sort of way to put it. So you've kind of talked about what actually happens in the kidney and nephrotic syndrome. Is there anything else you wanted to sort of? Um, so the fact that? is, um, the when you actually there is people like always get confused and look at a child with a nephrotic syndrome and says, "Oh gosh, he has got 
minimal change in nephrotic syndrome. You can't really say that uh, until you do the biopsy. But then what I would also say is, what do you mean by minimal change in nephrotic syndrome? So when you actually look at the histological classification, there's actually exactly two types. You could get a minimal change in nephrotic syndrome, or you can get something known as focal segmental glomerulosclerosis. So when you look at the minimal change in nephrotic syndrome, what you will find is there is actually no change on light microscopy. So that's why people called it. So good old days, we didn't have like uh, electron microscopy. We only had light microscopy. So you had these kids who were peeing out all this protein. They did a biopsy. Oh, gosh, they couldn't find a change. So then they thought, oh, that's why it is called as minimal change. <laughs> but gone then what happened is electron microscopy came back. And then they found that there is you have finger-like processes coming from, from your foot process, which is in your glomerular basement membrane. They fuse together. So when you read your textbook, they'll always say there's a fusion of foot processes. So that's what you actually find. So when you look at, and there is no change on light microscopy, when, when you have the other one, which is focal segmental glomerulosclerosis, which actually means, just split those words into four different segments. There's focal, there's segmental, there is glomeruli, which is actually being sclerosed. So when you actually say it off in an orand, focal segmental glomerular sclerosis, we will actually get <laughs> confused. So when you actually split it into four different words, you can actually see it's actually sclerosing of a glomeruli. And as a nephrologist, I'm more worried about that than the minimum change because my the kidney is already being damaged. It's been scarred. So your chances of going into kidney failure is much more higher. So that's actually what happens within the kidneys per se. And why does it actually happen? Because the protein is actually going through the kidney. Why does the scar happen? Because protein goes through the kidney. You've got to remember, protein, you should not be having proteinuria when you dip the urine because protein itself is nephrotoxic. Protein damages your kidney. That's why you're worried about protein in your diabetic patient. You know, you remember the good old days when you were doing house jobs in adult medicine, people say, oh, what's a microalbuminuria? Because when you have proteinuria, you will eventually, your kidneys will fail. So diabetic nephropathy is what actually does happen. So similarly, protein going through a kidney, which will actually happen when you have someone with FS, GS, or focal segmental glomerular sclerosis, kidney gets scarred, kidney will eventually die. So who, who does this affect? So when you talk about nephrotic syndrome, what I would also do is actually, it, it, there are, for all exam purposes, there should be if you don't have a histological classification, there is either steroid-sensitive nephrotic syndrome or steroid-resistant nephrotic syndrome. And what steroid-sensitive nephrotic syndrome is actually the uh, when you when you, when a first presentation comes in, you will give them 60 milligrams per meter squared of steroids. If they respond within that first four weeks, is steroid-sensitive nephrotic syndrome. If they do not respond within the first four weeks it is steroid-resistant nephrotic syndrome. So steroid-sensitive is if they respond within the first four weeks, resistance is if they do not respond within the first four weeks. Whom do they affect? I would say they will actually affect more of preschool children, uh, and the it's more among Asians. So even if you actually come to one of our clinics in Cardiff, you will actually find more Asian kids actually coming in with nephrotic syndrome. And you can actually imagine what's the incidence in the subcontinent, in, in Sri Lanka, in the Philippines, in Indonesia, in India, in Pakistan. It's actually quite high. It's more common in boys, so it's very much more common in, in the preschool thing. And I have to also say, the, when, when the first person, the most of the time, they'll actually go to the GP, and, and it's been diagnosed as hay fever. 
people will say hay fever and then they will be given claritin they'll be given all sorts of antihistamines nothing works and then two weeks later the edema has spread onto the legs and that's when the penny drops so that's what i said before if you have someone with edema dip the urine it doesn't hurt so before i go on to the investigations what i will also say is there are certain things that you need to look clinically to mm. um, so the you will find the edema uh, you need to check the blood pressure mm -hmm. in your history you need to ask the leading question do you have tummy pain so the tummy pain could be because of a couple of things the tummy pain could be because you're losing all your antibodies, you can get a peritonitis, you can get pneumococcal peritonitis. This is very well associated with nephrotic syndrome, it's a well-known complication. But it could be also a sign of hypovolemia. Hypovolemia can give rise to mesenteric ischemia. So if you basically found a child coming in saying, I have pain with nephrotic syndrome, having pain around the belly button, very non-specific pain, you've got to think, is, child, is this child hypovolemic? If you speak, speak up this phone to the nephrologist, they're going to ask you is, is the child cold peripherally? Because you know, to looking at the skin tag, edematous child, very difficult. Capriful time may not give you a right, uh, right idea. But when you actually try to feel where is the leg cold, where's the hand, where, where, where are the hands cold, or how far it is, some will say, oh, that actually they were cold up to knee high. It actually tells you the degree. So it's actually quite important to look at how you uh, how how warm your peripheries are once you've done that of course you need to actually dip the urine and you need to dip the urine and you will also say find nephrologist saying i want an early morning specimen sent for protein creatinine ratio and there is a and there is a logic behind it if you actually send off urine later part of the day we all have orthostatic proteinuria so by doing early morning specimen, if especially so when the first, this is what we'll tell the families, make sure you dip the first urine in the, in the morning so you don't find, and that is the best specimen to send off. So you send it off for protein creatinine ratio. So that's quite important too. So you send off, a, and the reason is the amount of creatinine your body basically secretes uh, in the urine is a constant, but they, so it's a protein creatinine. So the denominator, is actually the same, but the numerator exactly changes. It's very difficult to do a 24-hour collection in a young child, so I can get a spot urine with a protein creatinine ratio. That's useful. If you if you have a first presentation, I would do the full blood count. I will do a renal function, a bone profile, a liver function test. I will do the immunology screening, including a C3 and a C4. I will also do a hepatitis B serology, and the reason for the hepatitis B serology is sometimes it can be associated with some forms of nephrotic syndrome. I will also do a varicella serology too, because the mainstay for treatment is prednisolone or steroids. So you will put them on steroids, you'll get a phone call in a week's time saying that they have been contacted with someone with chickenpox. Then if you have the status, you don't have to worry, you can actually determine the treatment rather than trying to do what the status is and then doing it from there. What I'm expecting is, the urine dipstick should show proteinuria, might show a bit of blood, but not necessary. And the, it should be always three plus, and you, will, you, you can do that. The bloods will show a low albumin, a raised cholesterol. It's not necessary, but it's always the fact that you will find a raised cholesterol always as part of the nephrotic syndrome, but it's not a must. You may find a raised urea on your blood test. You may find a low calcium too, but then Whenever you see a low calcium in your nephrotic syndrome, do take it with a pinch of salt 
because it could because calcium is albumin bound so when the albumin is low so will be calcium so when you look for your true calcium or ionized calcium that's absolutely normal so which could be a, a, a question that could come up and what is useful is to see what the hematocrit is you will find the hematocrit or the hemoglobin coming back as 170 180 that's quite common uh, so that it just shows how dry the child is intravascularly is. So these are the investigations I, I will actually do of, and these are the results I'm expecting. Yeah, that's really that you've cleared up quite a lot of things that I had been confused about in the past. Thank you. So what sort of complications do you see in nephrotic syndrome, and what, what is it important to look out for? Okay. in a child with nephrotic syndrome. So when you have a child with nephrotic syndrome, what you have to do remember is they're actually, they're just peeing out all the goodies their body has produced. It could be antibodies, it could be all the good stuff. So infections is high up on the list. So even if you give them a vaccination, if they're having a nephrotic syndrome that's actually not treated, they'll just pee everything out. So they can have, they can have infections from that. They could also have thrombosis. They can actually are more likely to have clots. And that's because antithrombin-3, which keeps your blood thin, is, uh, is actually not there. So it actually just gets beat out. That's why you get uh, that. You could get acute kidney injury because you're actually hypovolemic. You've basically taken some other medications too. You can get hyperlipidemia. You can get malnourished because, all the again, the good, good stuff is going on. If you have nephrotic syndrome for a long time, you could become hypothyroid because, again, thyroid-binding globulin everything is actually being peed out. So you, you have to really go beyond just your usual electrolytes and look, look for it, look for these symptoms. Otherwise, you're never going to find it. So it's quite important that you actually look for uh, the, these, uh, these things. And if you, especially if you have a child who's come in, uh, has the full blood count done, and has got a bit, has hematuria, and also has got low platelets, do think in terms of renal vein thrombosis. I have come across children who's come in with a very confused, had a GCS of 10, turned out to have a suggestive venous thrombosis. I've come across deep vein thrombosis uh, in children with nephrotic syndrome who's gone on a long haul flight. So it's common, uh, but you will not see it if you don't look for it. Yeah, that's really good advice actually, isn't it? To um, always think about these complications when we're seeing a child with suspected nephrotic yeah. syndrome and take it seriously, isn't it? And, yeah. and look out for the abdominal pain, yeah. the irritability and all those sorts of signs. Yeah, yeah brilliant. Um, so uh, what, what are the key elements in the management of nephrotic syndrome? Right, so the first thing is the fact that, I did talk about the steroids, but the first thing is if you do have a child who's hypovolemic, then you, people will say, oh yes, I need to give 20% uh, albumin. There are only really three indications for 20% albumin. One is hypovolemia, so if you have a child who's got very cool peripheries or has got abnormal pain because of mesoventric ischemia. If you have a child who's got quite stretched skin and the skin is breaking down, just because you have edema doesn't mean that you've got to give 20% albumin. So if you have a skin that's actually breaking down, which is likely to get infected, you need to give 20% albumin. Or if you have pleural effusion, then you, could, you need to give 20% albumin. And the question is, why 20% albumin? Why not 4.5% albumin? 20% albumin is much more concentrated. So the volume I need to give for this child who's already fluid overloaded in the wrong space is much more lesser. Good old, old textbooks will always say that 20% albumin is salt poor albumin. It's not salt poor. 
it actually has got the same uh, amount of sodium as any other uh, as normal saline, but the, the volume that you give is actually less, so that's why it's actually salt poor. The dose you give is actually a gram per kilogram, but uh, and it has to be with given with flusamide halfway through and at the end of it. It's very important that uh, in my personal experience, if I have anyone calling up from any other hospital, I even here in my clinical practice, I don't like to give albumin after eight o'clock at night. And the reason is it runs over four hours. It is not an easy medication. It can actually end up with pleural effusion and you don't want to be that. And I rather do this uh, during daylight hours when there are a lot of people actually on uh, around too. So you could see why 20% albumin. I have come across in the past people saying that if you are actually in, in shock, absolute shock, then you're not even thinking you could actually go and give normal saline because that's actually the safe option. So don't worry about the salt. So if you're actually in shock, you should be actually be giving 0.9% saline. You could argue and say, oh, why can't I give 5% albumin? You can do that too. But there's nothing I, I wouldn't worry about because the your your resuscitation fluid is always 0.9% saline and it's a first line. I would actually still stick to that. The mainstay treatment is steroids. And as I said before, if you have a child uh, which which is basically has got nephrotic syndrome, you need to start off with 60 milligrams per meter squared for four weeks. And and if they respond, even if they respond within those four weeks, you need to carry carry on with the course for four weeks. And after and then afterwards, well, for after a month, you give them 40 milligrams per meter squared for every other day for a further four weeks, and then you stop it altogether. Some units in the country will use penicillin V. There is no evidence for penicillin V in nephrotic syndrome. So um, it's actually trying to prevent pneumococcal infection, but then uh, it's actually, uh, there is no evidence for that at all. So that is actually a data that's been extrapolated from uh, people who had splenectomy who has been given penicillin, saying that, oh yes, in, uh, these kids are the same, but there is no evidence base for that. But do remember that if you're having giving someone 60 milligrams per meter squared daily of spredenicillin, do give them ranitidine too. And that has to be there because I have seen children going home on 60 milligrams per meter squared, not on an HD blocker or on a PPI, and ending up with gastric perforation. So do remember that you need to do that. As part of your discharge script, you also need to give the family a, a box of albu stick and teach them how to look for protein on the stick because that is actually a mainstay because you they will call you up and says yes this particular person has actually had a nephrotic syndrome relapse which basically means if they're being cleared off and then they started having three plus for three days that's actually a relapse so you need to teach them that and it should be on the repeat script too that's great advice Raj. thank you um so i've heard that sometimes you need um, a biopsy uh, yeah. I was just wondering about, um, sorry, uh, what the indications for biopsy was. Sure. So the um, the uh, the indications for biopsy, I mean, the is actually if you have steroid resistant nephrotic syndrome, irrespective of age. So when you actually have nephrotic syndrome, there is actually a typical age category, and the typical age category I would say is between two years and twelve years. So if you fall within that bracket we actually will blindly start off steroids. If you're below that, you could argue the fact that, oh, should I give them the steroid too? This is completely different to what happens in adults, adult, adult nephrology. If you had a person come in with nephrotic syndrome and adult, adult nephrology, adult medicine, you have to rule out malignancy. 
because one of the ways malignancies may present is actually with nephrotic syndrome so which is which is not the case in pediatrics so a typical age group is between 2 years and 12 years so if you actually fall within that age group you you start off with prednisolone straight away without any but if you even if in that age group if you have serial resistant nephrotic syndrome you need to do a biopsy if you have a child who's got persistent hypertension despite your treatment responding you need to do a biopsy as to see what's going on you need to do if you have macroscopic hematuria you need to do an ultrasound scan making sure that there's no clots and if you still can't find anything there that's giving rise to it and it's got massive proteinuria fitting with a nephrotic picture you need to do a biopsy if you have renal function that's actually impaired and you corrected it with fluids and still not getting better you need to think in terms of a biopsy and as a set of investigation we, i also talked about immunology screen and doing a c3 and a c4 and if the c3 is low you need to again think in terms of biopsy so to recap once more is actually if the if if your age falls outside the typical age group that the typical is between 2 years and 12 years so if it is less than 2 more than 12 renal biopsy persistent hypertension macroscopic hematuria impaired kidney function low complements and steroid resistant nephrotic syndrome irrespective of their age group that's um quite a few um indications isn't it um so raj you were talking about uh, relapsing of uh, nephrotic syndrome earlier when you have three pluses of protein in your urine for three days can you just talk to a little bit more about um relapsing and remission yeah. so the fact is when you talk about relapses the fa- if you have three plus for three days or if you have two plus for five days is classified as a relapse so i will be advising families to take the stick with them if the child has got an upper respiratory tract infection if they're not the usual self to dip the early morning specimen urine and if it's consistently showing that then they need to think in terms of that when it comes to uh, relapses you could actually there are a couple of, a few terminologies that i need to go through and i'll go through that one by one the first one is steroid sensitive nephrotic syndrome which we actually talked about 90% of the children they'll respond within the first four weeks steroid resistant nephrotic syndrome if they don't respond within the first four weeks is actually what steroid resistant nephrotic syndrome is and if they have that we need to do a biopsy too there is two other terminologies one is frequently relapsing nephrotic syndrome and steroid dependency and this can be confusing if you're not in nephrology it can be confusing so if you frequently relapsing nephrotic syndrome if you relapse more than two times within the first six months or in more than four times in a 12 month period then you classify them as frequently relapsing nephrotic syndrome so when i see a nephrotic patient in my clinic for review my my question will be to them is how many relapses have you had in the last one year to date and then they'll say oh yes i had four relapses and then i'm thinking oh i got to be concerned of giving him this child more steroids i need to think in terms of a second line agent at the same time there's something known as steroid dependency which is a bit different from frequently relapsing nephrotic syndrome with steroid dependency you can't completely wean a child off the steroid so when the steroid therapy is been weaned off the child will start relapsing so they needs a higher dose or you stop the treatment they relapse within the first two weeks you need to think in terms of steroid dependency again if you if you start giving them the steroids you like the cumulative dose will be much more higher you need to think in terms of a second line agent here so we talked about steroid sensitive nephrotic syndrome responding within 4 weeks steroid resistant nephrotic syndrome not responding within 4 weeks frequently relapsing nephrotic syndrome having relapses of 
uh, or more within the first six months or more than four times in a year or steroid dependency where you can't wean off the steroids or they relapse within the first two weeks of stopping the treatment. Wow. So, yeah, you mentioned about um, some second-line agents. What sort of um, drugs are they? So the second line agent is again uh, depends on the you know we want to be steroid sparing because steroid will affect the growth. So if you have a nephrotic and I have come come across nephrotics, uh, especially from the subcontinent, where I've seen um, diabetes, I've seen uh, vertebral fractures, I've seen uh, uh, cataracts. Uh, so. It's not the fact that steroids are, they are the treatment, but they can't be used for a long period. So when you actually look at a maintenance steroid therapy, you actually look at, um, if you look at, um, uh, the, one of the commonest uses is cyclophosphamide. You can actually use it intravenously or orally. Um, the, the problem is with, and this is actually a commonly used medication, especially for steroid sensitive nephrotic syndrome. You could, uh, you could get bone marrow suppression, you can get alopecia or hemorrhagic cystitis with the cyclophosphamide. The other agents that's used for steroid sensitive nephrotic syndrome are cyclosporin A, which is the same as medication as you use for your uh, anti-rejection in transplant patients. Uh, you have levamisole, which is actually an anti-helminthic agent and which works very well in some children. Or tacrolimus, which is actually uh, a big brother of cyclosporin, which is again uh, immunosuppressive medication used for transplant patients. If you have steroid resistance nephrotic syndrome, it's bad news. You could try any of the above medications, but most of the time, cyclosporin A might actually do, might, might actually help the children, but it's not necessary. But if you, they don't respond, also remember that if you have steroid resistant nephrotic syndrome, 50% of them will go into renal failure within five to 10 years. Oh, that's quite a lot, isn't it? Yeah. So um, you talked about steroid resistant nephrotic syndrome um, and FSTS, but I was wondering if there was any other sort of tests that you needed to do. Yes, so uh, interesting question. So the fact is, when you actually look at uh, steroid resistant nephrotic syndrome, um, you and you found a biopsy of FSGS, or if not, you need to do your genetic test. I remember that when I talked about the histology, your your, kid, your, serve, your kidney is like a serve, and it's actually like a zipper. That's how. So you remember, your kidney is like a zipper. So when you have a one of one part of your zipper missing, that's what makes your kidney more leaky. So when you do the genetics, you can actually look for these proteins within that within that filter, within that zipper, whether they're missing or not. And the re they, it has got a big implication. If I did the genetic test and I find found, oh yes, this particular patient has got the podocin part of the filtering, filtering thing mi missing, then do I need to give this child immunosuppressive medications? Because I can give them any medication, it's not going to make a difference. And then what we do is we just let the kidney die and then have and 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 let them put them on dialysis and transplantation, because when you talk about steroid steroid resistant nephrotic syndrome, it could be locally, it could be within the kidney where you have a zipper protein that's actually missing, or it could be a circulating thing, so a circulating factor which you can't actually find. So you might find textbooks saying, oh, this is because the nephrotic syndrome happened because of circulating factor, or it's because there is a genetic problem within the kidney. For transplantation purpose, this has a big implication. If you had a problem within a kidney, within a zipper, if you transplant, it will not recur. But if you give a transplantation, 
to a patient who could possibly have a circulatory factor, it can recur in the transplant kidney. So when I get a genetic positive test, even though it's bad news, I'm still singing, saying hallelujah because it's actually good news for my patient on the long run that it'll actually not recur in the transplanted kidney. So the genetics has got a huge implications with not only from uh, a, a, a diagnostic purposes, but also from a prognostic purpose for the future. Mm. Yeah, that I didn't quite realize quite how um, important and uh, what good information about the prognosis that a genetic test gives really. Yeah. Um, brilliant. Uh, this podcast is sort of meant for people doing their um, theory exams. And I was just wondering if there was any top tips you had for, for, uh, for looking at nephrotic syndrome in uh, in your theory exams so the i mean the top tip is the fact that you know uh, for me especially from a clinical point of view too is the fact that if you have someone with uh, 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 with proteinuria uh, or with who comes in with edema do check for proteinuria so the fact is a nephrotic syndrome the diagnose the, di the you label someone with nephrotic syndrome is if you have the three hallmark thing that's edema proteinuria and low albumin in blood so it's quite important that you actually get these three factors. So it, it, it's, uh, it's easy to go on a wrong tangent, especially if you have someone with short gut uh, or liver issues having a low albumin, you can't label them as nephrotic syndrome. So that's number one. The top other thing is the fact that look for the complications. When, if you have a question based on abdominal pain with nephrotic syndrome, think in terms of hypovolemia, think in terms of peritonitis, Think in terms of, and if this child is already on steroids, is this gastritis because of steroids? Because I've seen that too. So uh, have your differential diagnosis there ready. But if it is a first presentation, think in terms of peritonitis, think in terms of hypovolemia, because uh, it, that those are the two most commonest things that I'm looking for. So, um, and then once you are actually seeing a nephrotic syndrome, the most important thing is, is when you're reviewing them, is looking for their growth, making sure that the number of steroid uh, doses not affecting them. How many relapses have they had in the last year? Uh, how are they actually doing that? And how are the family monitoring it too? So uh, this is, these are the main things that I'm looking for. But again, as, as I mentioned, the most commonest stuff uh, in nephrotic syndrome is a steroid-sensitive nephrotic syndrome. And the mainstay treatment is actually steroids. Uh, and uh, it, we did talk about the blood test. Um, and also the need for checking their various cellular status because that could be something that com comes up. And if you have someone who has been in contact, what we say is give them uh, give them varicella immunoglobulin and then vaccinate them. That's what we need to do. And those things are quite important. Yeah, very important. Oh wow, thank you, Raj, very much. Um, it's been really informative and interesting. Thank you. Cheers. Sir. And thanks to Raj and Stacey for that fantastic podcast about nephrotic syndrome. Let's just quickly go over what we learned there, just to refresh our memories. So first we covered what nephrotic syndrome is, a triad of proteinuria, low albumin and edema. We then went off to the differences between nephrotic syndrome and nephritic syndrome. Raj then told us a bit about the differences between minimal change nephrotic syndrome and focal segmental glomerulonephritis. He then went on to tell us about steroid-sensitive and steroid-resistant nephrotic syndromes. He gave us an idea about what we should be keeping an eye out for from a clinical perspective, abdominal pain, peripheral coolness, unusual findings on urine dip, 
the importance of doing an early morning protein to creatinine ratio, immunology screens and serologies. He then spoke to us about complications of nephrotic syndrome that included infections, thrombosis, AKI, malnourishment and hypothyroidism. Raj and Stacey then discussed some of the key elements in management of nephrotic syndrome. So the, the indications for using 20% albumin solution and using steroids. They then went on to discuss the indications for biopsy. For example, uh, children who are outside of the typical age range of 2 to 20, 12 years old, those whose renal functions are impaired and have not improved with fluids, those with persistent hypertension, and those who have steroid-resistant macroscopic hematuria. Raj then went on to tell us a bit about the differences between steroid-sensitive and steroid-resistant nephrotic syndromes, frequently relapsing nephrotic syndromes and steroid-dependent nephrotic syndrome. And with that in mind, he went to tell us a bit more about second-line agents that can be used in treating nephrotic syndrome, like cyclophosphamide. He then told us a little bit about genetic testing that can be available and gave us some top tips at the end to help us with our exams and with seeing patients in actual practice. So as someone who's always struggled, struggled getting their head around nephrotic syndrome, I can't thank Raj Krishnan enough for spending so much time going through this with us and we hope to hear it from him again with future podcasts. You can find out more about this podcast on our website www.dragonbitespodcast.com where you can find an accompanying worksheet for this podcast. You can also find our previous episodes and news about upcoming episodes. Please join us again for next week's episode which will be a quiz based on the cardiology examination that Sophie Constantinou went through last week. Thank you for listening to Dragon Bites.